Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Matt Chorley. This is the Red Box Podcast featuring the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. On today's show, we spoke to Tom Tugendhat, the Tory MP, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who thinks his emails have been targeted by hackers from China, Russia, Ethiopia, Iran, just about everywhere. Well worth listening back to that. Uh, we also spoke to Tory MP Andrea Jenkins, who finished with a song. Uh, you can listen back to that if you want to. You can go onto the Times radio app to listen back to the whole show, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasting including this one, and Past Imperfect, the brilliant interview series by Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Stories of Our Times, the daily podcast on The Times, and loads of others, so well worth listening to those. But on today's episode of the Red Box podcast, I've been speaking to the historian, the writer, the broadcaster, Anne Applebaum. Her book, her new book, Twilight of Democracy, The Failure of Politics and the Parting of Friends, paints a bleak picture of the future. She's an American who lives in Poland with her husband, Radek Sikorski, who's a former Polish foreign minister. And Anne's chronicled anti-democratic trends in Europe and the rise of extremism. And she joins me now. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. Lovely to have you on uh, Times Radio. Uh, so let's start. Let's start with your book. In particular, the book is the sort of the tale of two parties in a way—not political parties, but gatherings of friends. Uh, uh, the one at the dawn of the millennium, another uh, back in August last year. But the guest list of each party were very different. So, so what changed in that period? So to be clear, the parties are a metaphor. It's not a book about parties. Yeah, no, of course. It's, it's, not, not, even... <laughs> it's not a book about sort of catering. And, uh... No, it's not about catering. <laughs> it's not about catering. It's not about bands, nothing like that. So if you want that, find a different book. That's a different book. Um, That's a different book. No, it's really a book about um, how, how, how alliances have changed um, and how, yeah, in particular, I'm interested in a group of people who across several countries actually would have felt themselves to be allied um, in the 1990s are no longer. And this is the group that you could call, you know, the center right in Poland, they were the anti-communists in the US, they were maybe Reaganites. Um, and it's a group that was once fairly consistent and felt like, you know, it was it was it was working together towards common goals and has now split very badly. Um, the split has taken different paths in different countries, um, and it's not not exactly the same everywhere. Um, but the, one of the results is that everybody wound up with slightly different friends or slightly different <laughs> associates and allies and people that they they want to be with. Um, and because it it was a it, it was a phenomenon I was um, I'm aware of happening in 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 several countries, I felt that it deserved some deeper examination. And that's really what the book is about, is what led people to change, what led people away from that kind of center-right, pro-democratic, pro-liberal democracy, I should say, consensus and towards other ideas. And, and what is it that you think changed? Did uh, did the people you thought were friends and you've parted ways because you take a different view of the world, have they changed their opinions? Do you think they always had those views and now they feel more freely to express them and you know that's why you've sort of parted company what 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 has gone on so it it really depends on the on the person 
my my book will be very annoying for um, political scientists and maybe even for opinion journalists because it doesn't offer a single explanation. You know, it doesn't say the answer is X. Um, you know, I just I, I I talk about the changing circumstances and the and the different um, the different paths people's careers have taken and that, that led them in different directions. I mean, I think one thing that's clearly true is that when communism fell, and this is this is the this is the part of the story that concerns Poland and Hungary, when communism fell, we assumed or I assumed and many people I knew assumed that the opposite of communism was liberal democracy and that once you'd got rid of um, the one-party communist state, that what you would want to want to replace it with was a multi-party system and a free press and independent courts and rule of law. Um, but actually, the opposite of communism for some people wasn't that. It was a nationalist one-party state um, in which uh, courts are beholden to the government and the state um, you know, directs the media and and that's okay because this time it's a nationalist state, you know, um, uh, which which exists to propagate in, in in one case the Hungarian nation or the Polish nation, and that that's a legitimate replacement. I mean, to me, that kind of politics, I mean, while um, while cosmetically different from communist politics, and of course, I mean, in many ways different, actually, not violent, and you know, different kind of ideology and you know, different symbols and so on, um, is nevertheless. Um, you know, to, to me equally repellent. But it turned out that for some friends of mine or people who I once knew, I mean, none, some weren't, weren't necessarily friends, they were just acquaintances, but for some people, it's okay. As long as, as, long as we have replaced, as long as we have a, a state dedicated to preserving and maintaining our national identity, then it doesn't matter if the rules of liberal democracy or competition are respected. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I think some people didn't change. That was really their belief all along. And then for some people, I think the 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 various vagaries of their careers, their um, you know their feelings about their their former their former political allies, and in one or two cases, people who didn't succeed in the competitive um, political system um, have joined the new system as sort of propagandists or um, or 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 or, um, or or spin doctors, or in some cases journalists supporting the new system. So the so the the rise of illiberal political parties gave them opportunities that they hitched onto, and that you can also see really across you know across the West, across the democratic world. You've used the word collaborators sometimes to describe those people, which obviously brings inevitable sort of comparisons with you know Vichy France and the Nazis and Russia and Stalin and is that is that a, a sort of a bit over the top so you're referring to something else um so I wrote a large article for the Atlantic magazine that was published and was on the cover in in um in July um and that was a piece about that was a slightly different subject that was about very high-ranking Republicans it was so specifically about America rather than the border it was border. it was specifically yeah, yeah. about America it was about American top Republicans in the Senate and in the cabinet, I mean, really at the very highest levels, um, who know that Trump is violating the law and who know that he's abusing power and who know that he's undermining the, the U.S. Constitution and they know that he's damaging the country's foreign policy. And they know, and I know they know this because they say it to people off the record. Um, and yet they have refused to denounce him. They refused even to hear the arguments for impeaching him um, and they've stuck by him. And so that was a that you know that was a slightly different group of people from yeah. the ones who I read about in my book. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
you know, but 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 I you know, but I do think that the the drama of the Trump presidency and the way it's affected the Republican Party, and this does include people who I have used to know in the past, um, and the way people have felt obligated, as I say, to defend him, even as he defies and defiles man, many of their previous um, ideals. I mean, um, you know, what was one of the things that American conservatives were most against? It was the idea that the federal government would send troops into a state, you know, into a local conflict and try and and impose force on them. And, and, and you know, and there have been endless conspiracy theories about how this would happen. And we need to, and this is why we need guns, right? Because we need to, we need to protect ourselves against the federal government. It's, that's, that's part of the gun culture in the United States. And yet now that we see this actually happening, um, you know, in a really sh shocking and stunning way, we see troops whom, whom I didn't even know could be used in American cities. So they're, their customs and border control, uh, you know, and Coast Guard and TSA uh, transportation security officials are being brought into the center of the city of Portland, um, where they are, they have inflamed and worsened a situation and made the riots that are taking place there even worse. Now that that's happening, where are the conservatives who are pushing back against this? I mean, this was meant to be a kind of core principle. Um, and, and, the, and the absence of that pushback, whether it's from Republican leadership, or whether it's from people who I knew in the past, the sort of journalists and um, and and now, um, as I say, propagandists and activists and spin doctors for the Republican Party, you know, where are they and why aren't they responding? And in order to understand their mentality, I did find it useful in that in that Atlantic cover story. Um, I found it useful to look at comparisons in the past. So, what happened in East Germany when? East German communists realized that their communist ideals were not being, um, you know, um, respected by the Soviet, you know, the, the the Soviet occupation troops in East Germany, and that their, you know, communist state was, you know, they, they thought they were in favor of justice and prosperity, and really they were supporting something that was about repression and poverty. And what happened when they realized that? And the answer is that some of them left or escaped, and some of them stayed. And then the question is why that happens. And so, the, so looking at these past examples, just to see the mentality of why people stay with something that defies their principles, um, is is interesting and important. Right? You know, I think I think we can do that without saying that you know Trump is a communist or some simplistic thing like that. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, one of the things that, that struck me. Uh, Reading your book and that the 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 piece the um the piece at the Atlantic was, to what extent is this just what happens when you know you were you uh, for a long time you you know the people that you knew and the ideals that you you uh, preferred were the, were on the rise they were you know on the the march across Europe they were in power and now they're not and 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 that isn't that sort of slightly just democracy sometimes sometimes you know you and i end up on the on the on the losing side and we don't always like what what's going on that doesn't necessarily mean democracy's crumbling no i of course i agree with that um and um you know of course i can accept the fact that the other party wins the election i mean and and i've i've been on the losing side in lots of elections and have never objected to it um what I do object to is what happens when um, a party wins the election and then changes the rules um, and then alters the rules so that nobody can ever have a democratic election again. Um, and that is what's happened in Poland. And certainly it's happened in Hungary, which is no longer a democracy. Um, but it's also happened in Poland where it's, they haven't succeeded yet. But 
Um, you know, try to imagine that the BBC has been taken over by um, an extreme, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to prejudice listeners, but an extreme far right part of the, I don't know, the British National Party or an extreme far left, some party to the left of the Labour Party, um, and has occupied it and made the BBC into a vehicle for very harsh party propaganda for that extreme view. And that this is now the information that is pumped into, you know, on Radio 4 and 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 BBC television, and this is now what um, is pumped into the houses of everybody in Britain who listens to the BBC. That's effectively what's happened in Poland. So the public broadcaster that's supposed to have some kind of neutral status and supposed to have a neutral governance, and that's actually in the constitution, has been taken over by one uh, extreme wing of the ruling party and made into a homophobic, anti-Semitic, um, xenophobic propaganda. And that's, you know, that's very disturbing. Um, and that's one, that's just to give you an example um, of, the, of the kinds of changes that have been made by the Polish ruling party. And in addition to that, they have altered, they've tried to pack courts. Um, they're now trying to change the voting laws. So they've attempted to change the political scene and sort of alter the level playing field so that they can't lose. Um, you see a version of this in, in, the, in the United States where the Republican Party tries to use gerrymandering and voter suppression um, and other tactics to prevent people from voting, again, so that they won't lose. Um, and so this is what I object to. It's when people come to power and change the rules. Um, and, once, and when the rules are changed, that you, you, know, you can't have a, have a democracy in the same way. I and mean, that's not the only topic of the book, I should say. Well, that, um, one thing but I want but to... that's, that's a little bit different from losing an election. You know, I was, a, I was a Tory in the 1990s. When Tony Blair won the election, I didn't complain that it was unfair. You know? I mean, he won and that was it. The Labor Party is allowed to rule. Um, when, when the Law and Justice Party won in, in 2015 in Poland, I was also initially happy to say, okay, they won, now they, they get to rule. It was when they began to change the rules and when they began to alter um, the political system in ways that were unconstitutional and illegal, that's different. Um, and that is happening in a number of countries um, across the West. You mentioned that you, you were a Tory back in the 1990s. Did, did you used to count Boris Johnson as a friend? He, you know, he wasn't a close friend. He was an acquaintance. Look, I was a journalist for The Spectator. I was at one point the deputy editor of The Spectator, and he was, he was um, you know, he, he was somebody I knew. My husband knew him better. They were at Oxford at the same time. Um, and, you know, I knew him, and I, you know, when he was mayor of London, I occasionally, you know, ran into him. Um, and I thought of him at that time as a kind of, you know, he was the liberal um, internationalist, um, mayor of London, which is how he would have described himself, you know, not just to me, but to anybody at the time. I, I describe in the book a speech that he gave that, um, uh, you know, in, in that era when he was mayor, which was a speech comparing London and Athens. And it was a speech about how London is a great international city and it's open to, to foreigners and it wants to engage in international trade. And it was sort of vision of London as a sort of global capital. Um, and that's not the way he talks now. Um, and so that's something that also demands an explanation. Do, which do you think is the real Boris Johnson? I, you know, I would I would not presume to guess who the real <laughs> Boris Johnson is. 
Um, you know, I think he's somebody who wants to win. Look, he's wanted to be prime minister since he was at Eton, um, and he's never really denied that. And he has said so in many interviews over many years. Um, and I think that for him, Brexit was a path to that goal. I mean, he he saw that it was a, um, you know, he understood that he was he was associated with Euroscepticism because of the articles he'd been writing for many years. Um, he thought that it would the, the Brexit would lose, but that he would nevertheless remain a hero to the Eurosceptic part of the Tory party. And that was the gamble that he made. And then it, it worked out the way he thought it was with a lot of fuss in between. But um, <laughs> he got there in the end. <laughs> he got there in the end. I mean, I, I don't have a I don't think of him as being ideological at all. Or maybe that maybe that is the the case. Are you sort of disappointed in him having previously, you know, listened to that Athens speech and thought, you know, this this, I, this is a guy yes. I agree I with. Mean, I, yes, I mean, yes, I I am disappointed. Um, I think he could have, um, uh, you know, I think he could have had a broader vision for the UK. I mean, as I said at the time, my my problem with Brexit was that I I want the I really wanted the UK to be a major actor in the world. You know, what I really want is for the UK to lead European foreign and defense policy. You know, I feel that Europe needs a louder voice in the world. And the UK was one of the countries that could help give it that. Um, and so um, you know, my my disappointment isn't so much about I mean Brexit, I have I by the way, I have lots of friends who were Brexiteers and I've stayed friends with them. It's not a it's not a it's not a you know friendship killing thing, but but I'm sad that the UK is now inward looking, um, that it will you know that it will you know we, of course it's going to spend the next decade fighting with the EU over this and that over you know border issues over trade issues um, rather than um, you know rather than being part of a creative new European project which could help. Um, you know, create more stability and promote democracy in a world that's going to be increasingly dominated by the conflict between the U.S. and China. You talk in the the book about restorative nostalgia. There's been a sort of big driver in politics. We've had "Make America Great Again." Obviously, there's a version. You know, "Make Spain a Great uh, Great Again." We've had "Take Back Control" in the UK for so long. Politics, you know, and you, you talked about Tony Blair, but you know, Tony, uh, Bill Clinton definitely did. Most sort of successful politicians. It's all about the power of the new and the future and the the, the shiny new future that we could all embrace. Why do you think that harking back is now such a more powerful message, seemingly? So, the, again, there are various answers to this in the book, um, and I don't think there's a single explanation. Um, one of the answers has to do with the pace of change um, uh, and the degree to which people feel that they're rapidly losing something. I mean, to be clear, you know, the change and modernization and progress and so on do always create loss. You do lose things. Um, one of the people that I quote in the book and write a little bit about is Roger Scruton, the late um, philosopher, conservative philosopher, who wrote a book um, called England and Elegy, um, which is about, he describes as a funeral oration for my country. That's very powerful language, you know. He was writing the book as if England was dead. Yeah, I want to preserve the qualities of the England that I remember. And the book is powerful partly because there's an element of it that's true. You know, there are some things about England of the last century, you know, or the century before that, that are gone. Um, and as we, as, as people, as, as we've had this, um, you know, very rapid technological change in the last several years, I think people do feel um, some kind of loss. And one of the, um, you know, one of the brilliant, if you if you will, um, you know, discoveries of the Brexit campaign was that people they, is that that loss and that regret could 
could become a could be made into a political um, movement, or it could become part of a of a political of a you know of of the of a, of a political campaign. Um, and you know the other element that I point to is the you know we're also living in a time when the way in which people get and process political information has changed almost beyond recognition. Um, and so we're constantly being barraged with new information, with contradictory facts. It's very hard, you know, and you, you, know, you see it on your phone, you know, one second you have an advertisement for hairspray and then you have something about China and then you have something <laughs> about, you know, your cousin, you know, and, and, you know, you're trying to process this all the time. And for a lot of people, the desire to go back to something simpler um, is really strong and kind of understandable, you know, um, and politicians who can offer, who can say, we're going to take you back to a simpler era. Um, this is an extremely appealing message right now. Um, and I don't sort of, you know, I, and I don't deny that. It, the, uh, you, you, you slightly fell uh, cursed to, to, or fell victim to the curse of uh, sort of coronavirus coming and dropping its, it's extraordinary um, sort of political bomb in the middle of all of this when you were writing the book. What impact, and obviously you reflect on that um, uh, in the later stage of the book, but what impact do you think coronavirus is going to have long-term in, in politics? Some people saying, you know, that one of the great victims of coronavirus could be populism and this idea we've all had enough of experts and you just need a sort of charismatic gung-ho leader and that's that's all you, you need. What what Do you think that this will be a reset point on the some of the trends that you've been worried about? So the problem with with answering that question is that as the coronavirus pandemic develops, the situation changes. You know, so at the beginning of the pandemic, it did look like, and this is still true in a number of places, that the that it was going to be good for dictatorships because um, uh, people were scared, and when people are afraid, they are willing to give up their freedom in exchange for security and safety. Um, and you know, there were all kinds of extraordinary measures taken, including in Britain. Um, to force people to stay at home and to make people change their behavior. And a lot of countries closed their borders in very dramatic ways. Um, one of my sons got stuck on the wrong side of the Polish border. And it was a long story. We had to go to great efforts to get him back into the country. Um, and, and it looked like it would be that advantage. But as you say, one of the things that's happened as it's gone along is that it's become clear that to fight this pandemic, a lot of the traditional sort of authoritarian tools don't work. And it's not enough to close the border. You also need to engender trust among the public. Um, you need to have um, a public that has faith in scientists. Um, uh, you need to have, a, have some kind of social consensus. And in deeply polarized societies, and it's often polarization that produces this, these so-called populist or authoritarian leaders, you, those are the things that you don't have. And so it is not an accident that in the United States um, and Brazil um, and Russia and, you know, and several other examples, um, they've, there's been a lot of difficulty controlling the virus because you don't have social consensus. You don't have um, a government that respects sci you know, science. You don't have um, a bureaucracy that people trust or, that, um, you know, or that's competent you know, to, to, to carry out a, a public health system. So it may be that while in the beginning, this looked like something that would benefit autocracy, um, you could be right that in the longer term, um, these anti-science, um, conspiratorial um, political leaders will will be the ones who turned out to have have failed this test. It's just funny. Then, sort of looking slightly further ahead, where do you where do you think we end up? Whether it's in Britain or America, I mean, obviously, it's more obvious that it's coming in 
November in America. And, you know, all the polls now suggesting that Joe Biden's well ahead of uh, Donald Trump. You know, if Joe Biden wins, we could see a very different sort of culture in the White House. And we might end up in the way that we currently look back and think, blimey, the last US president was Barack Obama. That was a, seems like a very long time ago. Will we end up, will will Donald Trump end up being a blip? Or or, or do you think that there's a, this is part of a long-term trend? And what do you think might happen in Britain as well? Um, so I don't like predicting the future. Again, <laughs> seems like you know hostage to fortune. It very much so um, at the moment. You know, in in the in the U.S., um, you know, yes, it's possible that Biden win. I, by the way, it's not guaranteed, but it's not it's it's possible, um, and it's possible that we'll have a very different White House. But the question about what happens in the future depends a lot on what then happens inside the Republican Party, um, and will the Republican Party. Um, accept that Trump was a disaster, choose a different kind of leadership, one that is interested once again in reaching out to the whole country, in being a national party rather than a party that represents only the Republican base, um, and in, in, you know, in, and in a, a party that's responsible and is interested in um, telling the truth and um, you know, cares about, about science and, and, and making America work function better. Um, and if we do have that kind of political change, then we could return to something that we knew in the past, which is an America that has a kind of bipartisan consensus about foreign policy um, and some other issues. If we don't, if the Republican Party remains Trumpist, you know, if Trump loses by a tiny little bit, maybe if the party retains the Senate, um, then it's possible that you will have, you know, still have in the U.S. these wild swings between one kind of government and a completely different kind of government. Um, stretching on into the future, um, it, you know the, you know just because Trump is gone doesn't mean that the the tactics and the and the type of leadership that he represents will necessarily disappear. There will be other people, and some have already appeared, who will want to replace him, um, and 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 use that use those same tools to 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 propel America in a very different direction. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.